Welcome to the Dying to Ask podcast. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Quick programming note as we start out today. Editor Brian Lau and I typically release a new episode every Friday. Technically, it goes out late Thursday if you want to get a jump. But always by Friday morning, you should have a new Dying to Ask. And I mentioned in our last episode that we were going to be having an interview this week about a book called Flawless. And it's a book about Korean beauty culture. And my guest is Elise Hugh on that episode. So I decided to, to shuffle things around. Here's why. I decided to move somebody else up this week. Um, my kids have gone back to school. So I've been around a lot of parents in the last week. And I'm on multiple mom text chains, which can be epically funny and very useful. And there is one subject that has dominated a lot of these conversations. And it is... Basically the same conversation over and over again. Screens, my kids are on too much. I can't stand social media. I can't get them off their phones. How do you put on limits on the phones? Are you watching your kids monitoring their their apps? Are you on Life360? How do you spy on your kids? Like that kind of stuff. Super, super common these days. And a lot of people have been sharing their hacks of how they spy on their kids. I mean, everybody's like a Nancy Drew. I have a senior and I have a freshman this year. So the polar ends of high school. And the senior, if you've ever met him, is a tech genius. In fact, in my phone, I don't even have his name. It just says in-house tech support. Said that since he was like nine. And I tell you this because kids, if they really want to or feel they have to, can get around a lot of the controls that we spend hours and hours setting up. And maybe they're not doing that when they're younger, but definitely once they hit tweenland, YouTube will teach them and you how to do pretty much anything. So that's why there is this other push that's going on these days to not necessarily spy or monitor your kids, but instead to try to teach them to mentor. And Dr. Devorah Heitner is one of the people who is pushing mentoring, not monitoring your kids. She's on our show today. And I will tell you, I was so excited that she said yes. This is, I think, one of the most important interviews that I've ever done. And if you're a parent, I encourage you to really have an open mind and listen to what she says. And then consider sharing the episode with your friend group. Now, if you are not a parent, listen, because I think you're going to be fascinated and at times horrified <laughs> by what it's like for a lot of kids and parents these days in trying to navigate the relationship that the entire family has with the devices in our lives. So let me give you a little perspective on all this. I mentioned that I have a senior and I have a freshman. Let me throw a few dates out at you. Facebook came out in 2004. My senior was born in 2005. The iPhone came out in 2007. My freshman was born in 2009. So the first generation of kids is coming of age who has completely grown up public on social media. Think about that. So they're 17, 18 years old, and there's a good possibility that they have been on social media, whether they knew it or not, from the day they were born. And some of them are just finding out how much their parents have shared about them online to strangers. And a lot of them are not happy about it. They're not happy that they feel their privacy was exposed. They're not happy that they feel like their flaws were exposed. Um, you know, obviously parents celebrate a lot of successes and things that they're really proud of. But the kids, a lot of these kids are just now figuring out how much of their private life is actually quite public. So it's really easy to say in our community, our parent communities, 
let's not give phones to kids until they're in eighth grade. Let's not allow Snapchat as a group until they're 15. Let's put time controls on TikTok. But the bottom line is it's kind of like a Band-Aid. And the reality is that if we can't figure out ways to teach skills to pull back and analyze the impact of these devices in our lives and the media that we consume, then as parents, you pretty much lose as soon as they're on their own. Because then without that ability to sit back and analyze, how am I feeling? How am I reacting to this? Is this good for me? They may not make good choices later. So it's like digital forbidden fruit. And everything I just said goes for adults as well. (laughs) It really does. Think about how you use your devices, right? So there are a lot of positives to the way kids communicate these days online too. That is their community. It is how they talk to each other. And in lockdown, for a lot of them, it was the only interaction they had with kids their age. And sometimes for kids who struggle, that might be where they find their peers online and acceptance that they don't find at home or in their real life community. So it's it's a lot. There's no right way, but there may be some better ways than how we instinctively have been doing things. So back to my guest, Devorah Heitner, super cool, Gen Xer. She is the author of a book, a new book that's coming out in September, September 12th. It's called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. And then the book that you may already know her for is a book called ScreenWise. ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World came back or came out rather in 2016. And that book became a Bible for a lot of people and trying to understand how kids were using these screens. Um, Dr. Heitner's work has appeared all over New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. She has a PhD in media technology and society from Northwestern. She has taught at DePaul and at Northwestern. She has a teenage son. (laughs) She lives in Chicago. She's in this fight, too, has a vested interest. But she also has spent years talking to teenagers. She has gotten them to open up and talk about not only their relationships with screens, but also their relationships with their parents because of those screens. And so we're talking about a lot of things today. This is a little bit of a longer episode for us. Uh, but there was just so much good stuff. So we're talking about social media. We'll talk about when kids should or do get on phones. We're talking about age gating, that there's a lot of that talk going on. Um, educational apps. There's an app that's using K through eights called Class Dojo that's becoming very popular. There's PowerSchool and other apps like it that are used to track things like grades and GPA in high school. Tracking apps like Life360. Does your family have that on a phone? I bet you do. And Overall, the theme is going to time and time again come back to why mentoring trumps monitoring. So to all my fellow parents who have spent hours and hours setting up those time limits and stuff on the phone, spoiler, those YouTube videos are out there. They are working against you. So maybe give yourself the next 40 minutes and and listen to what Dr. Heitner has to say because it's not all bad. In fact, a lot of it is good. Her research has found that this age group These tweens and teens are actually far more concerned with their privacy than we old people think they are. They're savvy. They understand the impact of screens in a way that we don't. And they're aware of the impact that they have on their mental health. So, so much to talk about. She's just, she's fascinating. And I think you're going to get as much out of it as I did. I'm this time to ask what it means to be growing up in public. Can we blame the pandemic for the surge in screen issues? I mean, we blame it for everything else, right? How sharenting is harming kids and a couple of questions we parents should be asking before we 
hit publish on a photo of our kids. The best ways to use those educational apps like Class Dojo and PowerSchool. Life360, do you use it? I sure do. A case for not knowing where your kid is at all times. Dr. Devorah Heitner is my guest this week on the Dying to Ask podcast. Have you ever wondered how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Devorah, thank you so much for being on the Dying to Ask podcast. I've really been looking forward to chatting with you today. Likewise. So you have become this, this incredible expert on all things family and tech, but I think it's really important to point out that you are one of us. <laughs> you are in the trenches as well. Living the dream with my teenager in Chicago. <laughs> When did or how did your interest in screens and kids come about? Do you remember when all of a sudden you were like, this is this is it. This is what I need to I need to know about. So I was teaching college media studies and I taught a class on kids media culture most years that I was doing that work. And so I had 18 to 20 year old college students and I had them do interviews with third graders, nine year olds. And it was just so eye-opening to see the mini generations, right? My my 19-year-old students interviewing kids who could be their siblings at home. And yeah, they felt like, oh my goodness, these nine-year-olds have seen so much, or they, you know, they've been exposed to so much. And I recognized how quickly things were moving, that even in that 10-year span, there was so much change in what was available. And that was kind of mind-blowing. And then in 2009, my son was born, and so many of my friends were becoming parents around that time. And we were all talking about, should we be sharing our baby photos on Facebook? Like, do we trust this social media stuff? What, what should we let our kids play with iPads? Like all these good questions. And so I wrote my first book focused on kind of a lot of those questions about like, what access should we give kids and how can we help them navigate a lot of the received screen time? And then I would travel and speak at schools and companies and people would say, okay, Devorah, this is very reassuring. Thank you so much. But what about the fact that every dumb thought a kid ever has is going to be out there public and searchable because I'm mm -hmm. really glad that that doesn't exist for me and that everything I said or thought in high school, middle school, college isn't out there. Said so every Gen Xer that? Ever. And that's what made me start working on growing up in public. Wow. Okay. So the first book was ScreenWise. That was in 2016. Now, since that time, so many things have happened, not the least of which was a pandemic, lockdown, um, you know, two weeks at home, which turned into a much, much longer time. And kids who spent a lot more time in screens than I think a lot of people ever would have thought. Um, I, pre-pandemic, had a lot of boundaries in our house. And I think, given the ages of my kids, pretty healthy relationships with screens and access. It all went out the door, like a lot of families. And every it has family. felt, it every family, it has felt like, Pandora's box being opened up since that time. And obviously my kids have gotten older as have yours. How much of where we are right now, is it fair to say is pandemic, I don't even know what the right word is. It's not induced, but is, is direct fallout from the way we had to live for a couple of years? 
I think the pandemic was an accelerant to what was already happening, but kids were definitely living. I mean, in 2016, 2017, 2018, parents were saying my kid's phone is an appendage of them. So it's not like completely new. And in some ways, I would say that the phones and the other devices made the pandemic a teeny bit less terrible for some kids. I'm not going to say remote school was a success because I think we all know that it was a disaster for a lot of kids yeah. and, and, you know, at best, not that bad for some, but I do think the fact that kids could connect, whether it was on Roblox for little kids or Minecraft or older kids could connect on group texts or messenger or, uh, you know, WhatsApp or other things was helpful in terms of keeping social connection alive, keeping kids hopeful, keeping kids connected to communities, even school districts that, literally couldn't keep track of kids and wanted to know where kids were on remote school, had kids looking for other kids on like Minecraft networks and stuff. So the fabric of our society would have been that much more frayed if we hadn't had these things in lockdown. That said, I think a lot of families feel like they threw their kid an iPad and had to go to work in the next room. Mm -hmm. And that's who was raising the kid for two years. And that's, that's obviously really, really hard. And I think as parents, as much as we had no control and no support, we feel guilty you know, I think a lot of us have been really fed this line that like how much screen time your kid gets is like a direct referendum on if you're a good parent. And yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I've written both of these books is to get past that and say, we really need to look at the quality of our kids' experiences in these digital spaces and not just the quantity of time online. Yeah, because it's very easy. And I have heard people say, well, just take it away. It, it's not that simple. Nothing in life is that black and white. And you're this this generation's relationship with screens and the way they use them um, from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed is complicated. And in ScreenWise, you really explained why mentorship over monitoring is a much healthier and productive way to have a relationship with screens. But in growing up public, you take the conversation into privacy. And that's where, to me, it gets really, really interesting. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, what was it about that that you thought this is where we now need to take this conversation? How did you know that? I just feel like kids are so, I mean, both wise in some ways, like very thoughtful about their algorithms, the way they self-present. And they can also be very naive about questions like re about reputation and other things. And kids are quite vulnerable because they're so young. They don't have a lot of information out there. They can easily become known for something really bad, or they can be really vulnerable to sharing online things that they might later regret. We just have a lot of, I think if we, if we have empathy for kids and concern for kids, as, as I think anyone you know who cares about kids does, mm -hmm. we're just thinking all the time about how can we make this less dangerous for them and more fun and, and help them also balance the the ego stuff that comes with, for example, having a quantified number of followers. Like Having followers is really, even as an adult, it, it's a head trip for me to have my follower account go up or have like a ranking go up like on Amazon with a book or on TikTok or any place. And I'm an adult with like, I think a robust self-esteem. I've had years of therapy, like I'm I'm doing okay, I'm not a teenager. So I'm not like crowdsourcing everything I think about myself from others. And it's still tough. So for teenagers, Social media just hits us this incredibly, you know, vulnerable window of their lives when what other people, especially peers, think is so important. So what I really want is for kids to be able to navigate that with a sense of understanding, wait, a real friendship is a reciprocal relationship. This is someone who I show up for, who shows up for me. That's very different than a follower who has just pressed a button. 
and to help kids get beyond things like chasing followers, chasing cloud, mm -hmm. all of that, at least to have a sense of humor about it. <laughs> How did you find the kids to talk to? And what was that whole process like? All kinds of ways. A lot of community organizations where I've spoken or worked or school districts where I worked referred me to kids. In some cases, like friends of friends of friends referred me to like their own kids. Um, kids referred me to their peers and then we got permission to speak. So it was a really, because of the pandemic, it was complicated because I couldn't just walk into schools with my microphone and be like, hey, can I interview you? Or, you know, can I get permission from your parents to talk? And one of the things I did worry about is like, am I getting the compliant kids who will show up on a Saturday morning to a Zoom with, you know, a strange adult? So I really tried hard to like have kids refer me to other kids so that I wasn't only getting, you know, the students. I mean, I did ask this one group of girls, just for example, like if they wanted to be influencers and they laughed and one of them said, I want to be a neuroscientist. And I was like, great, but some kids want to be influencers. So can you like refer me to those kids too? Because <laughs> I don't only want to tell parents, don't worry, don't, nobody wants to be an influencer. Everyone wants to be a neuroscientist. Cause I, I don't, I do. Yeah, think that's not true. <laughs> but at the same time, I thought it was really great that I talked to some kids who just literally laughed at me when I asked them if they wanted to be an influencer, because it's true that that's not every kid's dream. And I think when adults generalize, about this generation, they, they are wrong. Well, and I think that, that, that word generalize is really important because it is, it has become very apparent to me, um, how little I know <laughs> the older I get on certain topics, but that my experience growing up is so wildly different than my kids. And I know every generation says that I think it's especially true for us because we still, you and I still had a foot in both worlds. We had a foot in the digital definitely a foot in the digital world, but you and I also remember when there was one phone in the house and when it was probably in the kitchen and privacy meant that you went into a pantry and you stretched a cord and people heard one end of the conversation. I that's, used to sometimes that's, take my phone into my bedroom late at night ooh. and like, you know, pull it across the house, but very rarely. And, you know, you had to have a system and a plan to pick it up before it <laughs> rang. And right. It was all very complicated, but that's, that's the way a lot of us, you know, we still view a lot of these things and these kids, your son, my boys, they only know a world like this. And that's a very different place to be growing up in. A hundred percent. And they, they are afraid of some aspects of it. They don't like the thought of being surveilled. They're nervous about getting canceled or having something blow up at the same time some of them are kind of living adjacent to the idea of going viral as a fun thing. And they're always kind of thinking like, oh, this would be pretty cool, you know? And so I think the fact that fame feels easy to come by, even though it's actually not, is both stressful for some kids and like overly enticing for others. And, and the fact is we are all living in a world where you can build more of a platform as a 15 year old than most 15 year olds could do throughout history or more, you know, they're, 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 when we look at young people who are activists, for example, uh, Twitter or some of these other platforms have been tremendously empowering and young people didn't have a space like that, you know, years ago. On the mental health um, aspect, because the Surgeon General came out in, what was that, June and, and talked about some of the research with different platforms, whether it's Facebook or not that any teenagers on Facebook anymore, but, you know, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, um, and how it impacts mental health. One thing we do know is that for girls and boys, that window when you are most susceptible to some of the harmful things that could affect you, your mental health, the window of time age-wise is different. Can you explain that? It makes sense because girls are have a period of intense vulnerability to peers and they also experience puberty earlier and sort of a flowering of social interest earlier. And again, these are generalizations like you sure. might have a 
a son who's very into social media, but you also might have a son who's just only into gaming, for example, and not doing social media at all. Um, but you also might have a daughter who's not into social media. So I don't want to generalize too much. You have to really look at your own kids. But broadly, the research has shown that girls are vulnerable a little bit more in the 12 to 14 range and boys hit some vulnerability more like 14, 15, 16. And that makes sense because the peer opinions then become more important. And then apparently all kids have a little bit of extra vulnerability around 19, which makes sense because that's the sort of post high school transition where, again, you're trying to norm and storm with a whole new group of peers. You're trying to, you know, potentially also think about your romantic life in a different way. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on at 19. So it makes sense that that would be another period of vulnerability. And again, that doesn't mean that every you know, 13 year old girl is in a crisis about social media, but it does mean we want to think about when we introduce these things to kids, mm -hmm. how much support they have. When I suggest mentoring over monitoring, I'm not saying give your 11 year old a phone and come back in 10 years and ask them how it went. <laughs> what I mean is you want to support them and ideally you're doing one app at a time. Hopefully your 11 year old isn't on any social apps yet because they're all supposed to be 13 and up, but you're mentoring maybe your 11, 12, 13 on texting make sure they really have a handle on texting before they add a social app. Ideally, they're only adding one at a time, not like five at a time, because each one has their own tricky pieces to learn. So ideally, kids can experiment with social apps and experience what they like and don't like about them. And some of them have chosen to take a break from some of the ones they don't like or that take too much time or make them feel bad. So we really want to support kids coming to, as much as possible, their own conclusions about what works for them and doesn't work. Parents love a plan. We love a book. We love a blueprint. We like somebody to say, do this at this time. It, it's hard to do that with this stuff though, isn't it? I mean, a lot of these apps do have ages, but the way I understand it, the age gaining on the apps actually isn't for their mental social development. It actually, isn't it a marketing yeah, marketing it's rules? totally, it's about what age they're allowed to track marketing data. And we know that plenty of kids under 13 are being tracked all over the internet. So the Children's Protection and Privacy Act, COPA is kind of like a very hollow set of protections. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not nearly as rigorous as what, like the ways kids are protected in UK and Europe, for example. And I think that's something parents here should notice and attend to. I mean, actually California parents have a few more protections on their side as well, but in reality, like it's hard to enforce that in the US. But when we look at the right to be forgotten that kids have in the UK or Europe, where they can go and ask things to be taken down that were put up before they're posted before they're 18, we don't have that here in the US. Oh, and that's, as a parent, can you I think explain that. I think that's very interesting, and I don't think people do know that the rules it's are a right that other kids places. have. I mean, it's it's a it's still limited. Like, if you go super viral in the UK for something, and your name is out there when you're 15, it's going to be really hard to like pull that off the internet. So, I want to suggest that it's has a limited, you know, effectiveness. But there still are ways, and I'm not a, an attorney or an expert on these rights. But if you look at the Five Rights Foundation. Uh, in the UK, like they talk about what it, what the right to be forgotten is, but kids can go and request things that were posted about them or by them before they're 18 get taken down. It's interesting. And I do think we should be living in a world where developmentally we're thinking differently about what people post when they're kids, tweens, teens, than when they're adults. I still think kids need to be accountable and not cause harm online. And if they do cause harm, they should try to make as much repair and restitution as is possible with the support of adults who care about them. What I don't want to see is, you know, things coming back from when kids were 12 or 13, when they're 25, when they're 40. I don't think that's fair, especially when we know that kids can grow so much in those years and change so much. I think it's really important that kids have a way to move forward after an incident online. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's very important. It is interesting as you talk about things that have been posted about them. Quite often, those things have been posted by parents. 
and in this conversation to to only focus on, you know, kids need to know they shouldn't post this. A lot of these parents probably need to look in the mirror and say, what are you posting about your family and how long have you been doing it? And does your kid strongly recommend parents ask their kids permission before posting about kids? And if your kids are zero to five, you know, use your best judgment, but imagine them as a super self-conscious 13 year old. Is there any way this picture could be embarrassing? If in doubt, don't share it out. And we want to think about why do we default to letting, you know, Meta or whoever be our family album? Like maybe we want to have our own lot more lockdown family album, even if we do share it on digital means, maybe we want it to be password protected. Or I often will just text the grandparents. And to be honest, my kid's very private. So I'm only really allowed to share pictures with the grandparents. I can't mm-hmm. share on social. Go to my Instagram. You'll see. You'll be like, she has a kid, really? Um, <laughs> you know I'm just what? not allowed people, to share. And he knows people say the same thing about privacy. me as well. Yeah, yeah, like he knows I'm writing a book about privacy. So he'd be like, you're so, so busted. I would get that 14-year-old <laughs> shade like all day long. So I have worst. to respect that. But it's hard because of course, like that's that would be my best content right there. Like that's the cutest person in my household. That's the person who's doing a lot of cool, noteworthy things all the time because he's grow- busy growing up. Like my husband and I are wearing the same clothes we wore 10 years ago. Like what, you know, I don't need to post us that often. Um but it's just, it's tough out there. And But I really think by respecting kids' privacy, they'll feel safer at home. And even your little kid might feel safer being silly and zany and singing their songs if they know you're not going to videotape it and show it to everyone else in the third grade. Yeah. And when it, you share on your Facebook or Insta, it's important to understand that if your friends are their friends' parents, you are sharing it with everyone in the third grade. That's right. Where, what would you say then are the questions that maybe we could ask to kind of slow down that slow that role of sharing? Are there, are there some yeah. guidelines maybe parents should have? We can ask about our motivation. Like, am I sharing this, um, you know, to keep up with other parents? Am I sharing this to find community? If I need to find community, which I think all of us do, especially now, and I totally support that for parents and have empathy for that, then is there another way I could get this community without maybe compromising my kids' privacy? Like, could I join a parenting group? Could I go for a walk with one of my friends and tell this story? Um, so the need might be a really valid need, like to find community and connection and support as a parent, but there may be another way to get that. Um, and I think a lot of us do feel like, oh my gosh, everyone else is posting about their kids. Is it like, I don't love them if I don't post them, you know, just like if people are really big on posting their love story with their partner or their, their spouse. And it's like, oh, if I don't post on my anniversary, does that mean I don't love my husband? You know? So I think we have to think about, are we doing this for a performative way? And can we turn off that need? you know, do we not need to do that? Sometimes parents will tell me they have one kid that doesn't want to be posted and another that does. And then when the kid who doesn't want to be posted sees the feed, they're like, wait, well, I can see who your favorite is. Mm -hmm. I literally interviewed a mom who had that story. And then she was like, well, dude, you told me I couldn't post you. Your sister wants to be posted. Um, But even that gets really tricky. So I just think we need to look at our motivations, look at what the long-term effects are going to be, Maybe that's a family that needs to ultimately be posting less to like minimize that imbalance. I don't know what the solution is, but they could maybe even have a family meeting and like figure it out. But we want to give kids a voice in that conversation. If they're asking who your social media friends are that you're sharing with, that's a great question. That's a valid question. If my picture is going to be shared, I want to know with who. Yeah. Right. So these are great questions. And then ask yourself too. Is this something that could embarrass my kid in any way? Like, could somebody tease my kid about those like footy pajamas? Could somebody tease them about, you know, and like, think about not your friends who are going to think everything your kid does is adorable, but their friends. Think about middle school. So if you're sharing something of a fifth grader, is this something that in two years is going to be a problem in seventh grade when Mm -hmm. they, when, when the, when the mean kid in the kid's class goes and finds it? 
right? So just, I mean, if you're sharing their birthday party, think about the kids that aren't invited. Like there's just so many reasons to maybe share yeah. a little bit less about our kids or just be thoughtful about it. I have a son who is a senior. So this summer he's been going through the, you know, pre-application process. So a lot of that is they're writing essays and thinking about personal statements and, you know, all that kind of thing. One of the exercises that he was asked to go through was doing a deep dive and going down the rabbit hole on yourself online and finding out what's out there and finding out what your family might have posted out there. And it, he was telling me that the person who was guiding him through this process had assumed that he probably had a lot given what I do for a living. And the truth is I haven't posted anything about my kids in 10 years online. And I stopped doing it for a real specific reason. And it had to do with security. Um, and also it just, my gut just told me, I don't like where all this is going because I see a lot of things in what I do for a living. <laughs> But it was interesting that, you know, a lot of these kids are only finding out when they're maybe 16, 17 years old, what mom and dad might have shared. A lot of yeah. them had I no idea. I talked to a lot of kids who had that experience and some of them were very upset with their parents. About yeah. Things that have been shared. And so I think it's better to have those open lines of communication. And even if your kid is confronting you at 17 about an old post or a video or anything, just take it down. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not even something that's worth spending capital in your relationship on. If your teenager is saying, take down the picture, like I would save battles with a teenager for the really important stuff, like, you know, keeping <laughs> them from drinking and using illegal yeah. drugs underage, like, you know, pick your battles and fight to win. Like your need to share a picture of them should never come above their feeling of, I don't want you to do that. Yeah. And, and then, I mean, even graduation, you know, a lot of kids will like, would want those pictures out there, but some kids won't or applying to college. And I found that a lot of, and you'll see this this year, a lot of the seniors and juniors I talked to kept their college search pretty close and just told their closest friends. And at some high schools, it can get very competitive. And so, you know, kids told me stories of like, I didn't talk to my friends about it because we agreed to not, or I agreed to talk to my friends about it. But then my mom shared my early decision online or whatever. And it's like, respect kids' privacy around that. And yeah. with a college search, anyone seeing that can add pressure to your kids. So if they know where you're visiting or looking, and I recognize that everyone's going to ask you about that all year, if you're in a community that's very college focused, but ideally just say, Hey, we're just keeping it close because that's a lot of additional pressure. And, you know, my kid doesn't need that. I love that. I heard another, another good line, which was, um, it's not really my story to tell. And I yeah. loved that, you know, it's not your story to share necessarily. Exactly. And I think a lot of parents kind of get overly involved, especially with that moment or other tra life transitions. And it, it, and of course, part of it is your story, but again, get that support. Like say, say your kid's college application process is stressing you out. Like absolutely go talk to your best friend, your therapist, your sibling mm -hmm. about it. I'm not saying you don't get to have that support. You just don't need to have it in a way that compromises your kid's privacy. You don't have to suffer alone, but you don't need to broadcast. Right. Isn't it interesting when you talk to kids, especially teenagers right now, if you look at a lot of their Instagram pages, they have no pictures on there. They actually are much more selective in what they share often than people our age are. A hundred percent. Or they might have a smaller Instagram group that they call their spam account or something where they're sharing with a small group of people, but even then they may not be sharing as much as just messaging. So absolutely. I think a lot of kids are using social media in a very privacy savvy way by not sharing a lot of searchable stuff or by sharing with a smaller group of people. And sometimes parents worry that that means their kid is like up to no good, mm -hmm. but I think it actually means your kid is smart and savvy and thinking about 
their privacy going forward and recognizing that, you know, they're going to have a life where people might search them at a job application or something along those lines. Yeah, it's very interesting. Okay, so that's sharenting. Can we talk a little bit about um, school apps? Because one of the things I know that concerns me, not only for my kids, but also for myself, is how much of the day I spend on apps, on a phone, on a screen, um, says the person who's on television for hours in the morning. But I mean, I spend a lot of time um, on screens. And now kids do as well in school. And a lot of that, as you said, was accelerated during the pandemic. But in a lot of school districts now, you're on an app that maybe is helping track and reward or flag behavior from an early age. In the high school, they have apps that track your grades with a rolling real-time GPA, which is kind of horrifying at times. Um, what are what are the things that we need to be thinking about when it comes to um, how much time we spend and how we react to all these educational apps? I think it's very big brother and we need to be very thoughtful about how much we want to allow it to influence our behaviors and our relationships. So with grading apps for older kids, usually in middle school or high school, a kid will have access to their grades through like PowerSchool or Canvas or other things. Mm -hmm. And that will also be where their assignments are. So it's hard to completely avoid it because you need to go check your assignments. But ideally, you're not checking your grades all the time. You're maybe not putting it on your most frequently used device. I've coached a lot of kids to take it off their phone. So they at least have to go to the computer to check it and maybe to not leave it open all the time. So they maybe need to like go get a password out of a drawer. Because a lot of kids compulsively overcheck. And I think parents are checking so often that school districts have had to shut down access during the school day. So parents aren't texting their kid at school. Because the worst thing you could do for your kid's focus at school is like they're literally sitting there in AP US history and you're texting them about their pre-calc grade. Mm -hmm. That is not going to help your kid have a better day. So kids are... I think often too anxious about grades. I think, you know, you, you'll meet parents in schools that say, oh, the kids aren't anxious enough, but I don't think it's anxiety that we want. We want kids to focus on learning and we want kids to have some idea how school is going. So they know if they need support, they know if they need to self-advocate, they know if they need to change to a different class, right? So we do want kids to have some idea how they're doing, but overchecking the grading app is not the best way to get that. And it can really undermine the parent-child relationship. And, and the whole triangle with the teacher, the student teacher, parent teacher, all of that, because it makes the relationship with the teacher so transactional often. Mm-hmm. And that's not good either. Teachers do not like to get those like, I need 0.375 to get up to an A. What do I need to do? Like they might be like, wow, I'm really loving learning about the Civil War. What else can I read? Um, or I'm really struggling in this class. Can we meet during my study hall? Like those are emails most teachers would be like happy to get and happy to respond to. But if you just say like, what do I need to do to, you know, move my 0.08%, that's not a good email teachers really want to get. And it just turns their experience into something very transactional. Well, that word transactional just resonated with me because I feel like that, especially for the high school kids, is how the relationship at home starts to feel a lot of times. You know, my older son has told me, during the pandemic, when one of us would walk into his room when he was in there for, you know, 20 hours a day and the phone was in our hand and you could tell we were looking at something. He knew it had to do with the the school app. And it was interesting then to really learn about how the app worked and to find out that it doesn't really um, update in real time. And yeah. while, you might have good in, while you might have good intentions that did you forget about this assignment or I think you're supposed to have done this, what parents don't always know is is how the teachers are using it. And I think that that's like when you were talking about like pulling back a little bit on that, that's, that's why. A hundred percent. If we can, 
And it's really tricky because there may be kids who really are struggling or they're missing assignments, but also checking the app all the time may not be the most help for those kids. And that's where, you know, a kid may need more support at school. They may need all kinds of things. Um, they may need a, a more rigorous mm -hmm. set of study habits. They may need to be trained in techniques for executive function. But having your parents be all over you to that degree is so undermining, and especially for a high schooler who really should be moving tremendously toward independence. And again, if they are going to get that extra help, ideally, it's not from mom or dad. You know, someone at school giving them that extra support could be yeah. great. Um, but they really need to also learn to self-advocate. And, and that's that's just so crucial for teenagers. And their process of independence can really get interrupted if we over-rely on those apps. And they might start to really resent us and want to hide from us, which totally. is not a relationship. I was surprised to find out that there this is also in the elementary schools too. This this is new since my kids were younger. Um, there's one, and I'm sure there are multiple, that you, you reference in the book called Class Dojo, which is kind of like... Um, the board where you used to put like the stickers up when you did things where you got to, you know, win something exciting, like be the line leader or you know, something along those lines. Yeah. It's very but, much along those lines. Cause it's basically about sort of publicly shaming kids who don't have great behavior or who struggle to self-regulate. And unfortunately, everything I learned about these apps are, you know, is that it, it, even for kids who are very compliant and tend to have good behavior at school uh, for whom self-regulation maybe comes more naturally, there can be a lot of anxiety having their behavior publicly recorded and so closely scrutinized yeah. and shared with home every day. And then for kids who do struggle with self-regulation, who do have more kind of quote unquote behavior issues or challenges, those kids are going to get constantly dinged and it can be a huge hit for their self-esteem. And it might even make other kids isolate from them or bully them if there's collective punishment involved, which if you ding the whole table for the kid who can't stop talking or giggling because that kid struggles with self-regulation, then the kids are not going to want to sit with that kid because they don't, then, then they're not going to get to go to the treasure box. So these are why these collective behavior, you know, enforcement techniques are really problematic for kids in a number of ways. And I talk to parents across the spectrum with kids behavior, again, who are super sort of good kids, compliant, easy, who still felt stressed out by class dojo. And then kids who struggled more with self-regulation where the parents felt tremendously stressed out by class dojo. Cause do I need to know during my 11 o'clock meeting at work that my kid spoke without raising his hands? Like, is that actually going to help me have a good day? No, no. Um, and what does that actually do for my kid? Like, great. You've told me that, like what now what's the plan? And so I think that app in particular represents, you know, a sort of a good idea gone wrong or a good idea that has more negative implications than positive. Like there may be some really good things about the app, but there are more problems with it than it's worth. And I think more risks. And I did talk to school districts where they forbid teachers from using it, but in general, it's a teacher's own choice. Like she's putting that on her own phone, hmm. right. Or her own iPad or whatever. And so, you know, if your kid's um, class says, oh, we're doing, you know, their teacher says, oh, we're doing class dojo, you may want to push back. And you also may want to learn more about, did the teacher get any support on this? Or are they just doing this independently? Because uh, a lot of teachers are, I think in a in a bind with classroom management right now and needing support, but I I personally don't believe this app is the answer. I mean, mm -hmm. um, as much as it may have again some some good aspects to it, I just talked to too many people for whom it was really stressing their relationship with school to feel good it, about it. It feels like a lot of these these apps or programs start from a good place. Like I don't assume that people start out trying to screw our families and have horrible things happen and compromise their mental health. But something happens along the way 
Um, and we don't either don't ask enough questions or we don't have a blunt enough conversation about what's actually happening. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that no, I, I I agree that people aren't out there doing, and certainly in ed tech, there's like a lot of really idealistic people. And mm -hmm. I mean, think about like Khan Academy or, you know, people who just really want to make education more accessible. And I, I do think that Class Dojo probably comes from that place. And like one of the things it does and a lot of the other apps do, like I know PowerSchool or Schoology or Infinite Campus, where which my son has at school, translate into other languages, for example, which is an incredible thing, right? Like, so of course we want the information about the football game or the parent-teacher night or, you know, the debate parents meeting to go out in these other languages and so that it can be accessible to families uh, who for whom English isn't their first language. Like, that's really good. That's a good use of tech, right? But if it's getting to the point where kids are overchecking their grades or parents are getting constantly pinged about kids, you know, again, you know, speaking without raising their hands or other, what I would think of as like fairly minor issues right. that I would, the teacher would feel competent to deal with or supported in the building with other professionals to deal with, then I'm thinking it's too much. And it just, we're all so anxious. Right. Yeah. I wrote about this a few years ago for the Washington Post, where like parents listening in on remote school are hearing teachers admonish kids and they're anxious. And that's how class dojo feels. Yeah. Like, I don't need to be there. I'm already having a hard enough time. You know, my kid just started high school and I'm already like a nervous wreck just because I'm an anxious mom, not because of anything and, to do with him. And you're an expert in this and you're anxious. And I know too much. I'm, I've been to a lot of high schools and I know too much. So it's like better for me not to have that constant stream of information. Yeah. You know, do I think schools should call home before a kid is completely flunked out from not showing up? Yes, there has to be a happy medium. Like, I don't think the first call you get should be, okay, we've expelled your kid for not showing up to any classes this right. year, right? Like, obviously, there's some happy medium to me between like, pinging you every four hours with great updates and like, not letting you know your kid is failing yeah. um, or not attending. Um, but even those robocalls for attendance, I think are like a little over the top. Like your kid is like two minutes late to school and you get robocalls for the rest of the day or whatever. And you're just like, I know I saw he left late, whatever. It's fine. You know? So, I mean, I think we just have to figure out as a society, how much we want to be surveilling one another. And if we are going to accustom kids to this, and by the way, life 360, I'll put it in the same category. If we're going to, that was my next one down, yeah. with life 360 maybe we need to chill a little bit and also teach our kids how to be in the world. So we don't feel like we have to track their location every second. Because we didn't, you and I didn't have, nobody knew where we were. They had an idea, but they really didn't know it. And it's funny when I have these conversations with my kids after we've had a blow up over any of these apps that we've just talked about. Um, and I'll, I'll try to like, I'll try to circle back with empathy, but then I've tried to explain to them kind of the way it was when we were growing up. The idea that a report card came home four times a year, it was usually yellow and it was folded in three. And we found out that Devorah and Deirdre talked too much in class because there was a check mark, talks too much in class. One time, not being pinged all day long on an app that your kid is has spoken out of turn. I mean, it was very, very different. It really was. And our parents didn't necessarily know where we were. And the call home was perhaps a collect call, <laughs> you know, to say that you needed something. And we're never going back to those times. But I, I think it's it's interesting to see how radically different things are for these kids. And, you know, like something like a Life360, and there are lots of different versions of these things. I'm not picking on one. Um, we know all the time where people are all the time. 
Yeah, it's great. It's great until it's situated us to not feeling like we can ever sort of just wander and be unaccounted for. And I think that's a problem. Um, But I I do think, and there's a lot of misunderstandings that come from Life360 and parents who told me that it brought more mistrust in the relationship. I will say I talked to parents whose kids track them and they're like, hey, I saw you pass Starbucks. Why didn't you bring me, you know, my favorite thing? (laughs) So it's a little bit of like turnabout is maybe fair play here. (laughs) That is pretty funny. So what, what are your thoughts on those ones, especially? I mean, in theory, and again, starting from a good place, it's no one like is somebody on their way home. Did they make it? That kind of thing. That part of it is good. That can add a little bit of, of, of ease for the family until maybe it doesn't. So what are As some an anxious mom? I find that less is more. I think everyone needs to come up with their own policy, but I also think that, you know, consent is important. And I think if we are doing things like tracking our kids once they've gone to college, you know, and tracking them, like, did they go to class as some of the, one of the dads I wrote about in growing up in public did, I think that's way too much. I just think, yeah, maybe if you have a new driver, of course it's reassuring. I understand all of that, but I think more important is to equip our kids with strategies to use if they have a flat tire and if their phone runs out of juice and like, what is their plan? What would you do? Right. And I get that it's scary to contemplate your kid on the side of the road, but I think it's really important to have those conversations because we don't want our kids to be so dependent on an app that if their device runs out of battery, they have no, no B plan. I've been pleasantly surprised when my kids have run into an issue, a problem, whether, whatever it is, I'm really surprised to see how sufficient they actually are. You speak the local language, like ask for help. And we don't want to teach, teach, teach our kids that the world is so perilous that they can't do that. Where do you envision taking the research next? Like, what do you think is the next big thing that we're going to need to start talking about? when it comes to oh my to goodness I mean that is you know question. sorry I'm putting you on really the spot on that one but I'm curious to know like what's next I'm curious how higher ed is going to change around these young people and the ways they learn and the way they've they, the way they have learned to learn and socialize with social media I'm curious about what universities and colleges will do to help kids and young adults emerge with both face-to-face talking social skills and to capitalize on their incredible digital facility so I think that's that's a really exciting space. And I'm curious about how young people are going to change the apps. Yeah. You know what else is interesting is that you're going to get your second generation of having lived in a purely digital world. Because all these kids who've grown up on Facebook and with the iPhone will start having kids themselves in the next few years. And it'll be interesting to see how their parenting changes based on 100%. their experience of having grown up in that. Yeah. I will be very interested to see that as well. Well, I feel better after talking to you. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the research that you've done and uh, th- that you're having these conversations. And I think it's really great for other parents to have them because we're so quick to say, you know, let's let's age gate this. Let's all agree that we won't do this until that time and that until that time. And the reality is that that one size fits all doesn't work. It just doesn't. And so having these conversations and being transparent in your family is long-term probably going to work a lot better. Absolutely. I think being in conversation with your own family and with other people about just how to do it, what do you wish you'd known if you have friends, you have older kids, like those are great Mm. questions. But yeah, I think age gating doesn't really get us there because then we're still pushing kids into the deep end without support. We want to kind of wade in with them and understand their digital experiences help them navigate the social skills they need to be there, be successful, and to know when they want to leave a digital community or or interaction because it's not good. 
Before we leave, there's one thing we didn't talk about, um, and that is snooping on your kid's phone. Oh, yes. Can we can we just hit that real quick? Um, Absolutely. What, so, what can you talk about just, you know, that idea of, you know, I read my kids texts every night. I'm on their discord. I'm, I'm doing there are a lot of families who it's give me the phone. Let me look through. Talk us through that. I think it's really important to give kids space to learn how to interact with their peers and also not to relive middle school or elementary school or high school by, you know, reading the entire group text. I think if we are monitoring, we should do it as part of a mentoring strategy where we're doing it with our kids collaboratively. Like if you have a new phone user, you're sitting down with them maybe every couple of days or once a week to look at some of it with them. And then as you back off from that, as they get more independent, making it clear that they can come to you if they're in a tricky conflict, if someone's sending them something inappropriate, if they're being harassed in any way, or they feel just uncomfortable with an interaction, and that they can bring it to you directly or just talk it through with you. And it's, you, it's important to be that kind of resource for our kids. Should parents have passwords to devices, do you think? I think for a new user, that could be a fair condition of ownership if you don't abuse it and overuse it. And then I think if a kid is in a real mental health crisis, like they're coming home from inpatient treatment or something, that might be a situation where, you know, a certain level of monitoring that's collaboratively agreed on, maybe with a therapist makes sense. I think for, you know, a typical high schooler reading their texts may be too much, too invasive and not worth the relationship risk. Uh, But knowing that if they, you know, make a threat against others or a threat of self-harm that you might, you know, dive deep to find out what's going on if they won't disclose to you is a fair condition, right? I think obviously if our kid's literal life is at stake, that's a different scenario. But if you're just like, oh, they haven't talked to me that much this week, maybe I'll read their texts and find out what's going on. That's not a healthy way to be in relationship. Yeah. And going through high school once is hard enough. Exactly. You want to support their autonomy. Let them bring those stories to you and they will tell you if they can trust you and open up to you, they'll tell you. Whereas if you're reading it all, you're not going to even understand it in that way because you want to have a context and it's going to create a lot of worry that for many families is really unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. What are some good ways for people to keep up with your work and, and how you're sharing it? Oh, thank you. Come find me on Substack. So come, come read my book. It's available everywhere. Books are sold. And I'm also at Instagram, Devorah Heitner, PhD. Please check out this book. It's available for pre-order now. It officially comes out in September. It'll be delivered. If you do the pre-order now, it'll be delivered on September the 12th. Maybe you could even reserve it at the library too. Great one for a book club. If you have a book club with a lot of parents in it, I think it would be so interesting to have everybody read it. And especially if people had different ages of kids to get everybody's take and discuss some of the things that Devorah brings up. That would be such a fun one, especially with little wine or something. I think that could be a really good book club book. Um, Share this episode with your friend group or if you have maybe a group at school that you think would benefit from having the conversation, I think that would be an awesome one to share with them. And let's just broaden the conversation about how we're doing things, share the information, find out what's working for people and maybe what's not working for them that is just as valuable. Thank you so much to Lizzie Joe. She left this awesome review on Apple Podcasts and wrote, love your podcast, being an early riser. I've watched you on KCR3 and I started listening to your podcast this past year. I've especially loved the annual summer book list. That is my favorite show. And I have finished several this summer. Good for you. I've enjoyed the variety of topics and guests along with tips and life hacks. Keep up the good work. 
Thank you, Lizzie. The work does continue next week. Elise Hugh, the author of Flawless, is going to be our guest. Scared you with all things digital this week. Next week, I'm going deep into your pores. It's a discussion about the Korean beauty culture. Think it doesn't impact you? Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) You'll hear all about it with Elise coming up next week on Dying to Ask.